Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. The seventh Sunday of Easter, John fifteen twenty six through sixteen four. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Amen. Dear friends in Christ Jesus, among the heathen and Christians there are men who have maintained that all sins are the same. It is undeniable that no sin is a joke. Each is a transgression of the divine law, an insult to the great majesty of the eternal, holy, and righteous God. Each merits eternal separation from God. Nor can one deny that there are degrees of guilt. For certain sins can have forgiveness and be in God's grace. Other sins necessarily exclude one from God's kingdom and his blessed communion. Not only does God's own word make this distinction clear, but deny it would destroy all the comfort of the gospel and lead the sincere to despair. No person is so pure and holy. Sin would be found in him as long as he lives. To be sure, there is a great difference among sins. There is the difference between actual and original sins. All men are born with the latter. It is a sinful state the ruin of the whole human nature, soul and body, intellect, will, and inclinations. Among the actual sins, there are sins of weakness and sins of malice, sins of willfulness, sins of rashness and dominant sins, willful and unwitting sins, forgivable and unforgivable sins. Sins of weakness are those one commits only out of the weakness of the human nature. His earnest intention is to serve God without sin. He is sorry over the least mistake, seeks forgiveness for it, and after the misstep becomes ever more wary and watchful. Sins of malice, on the other hand, are intentional sins in which the person delights. If the person loves and cherishes them above others, they are also called pet sins. If sins are of such a nature that one merits temporal punishment but knows how to escape it, or if one oppresses the poor and forsaken still more, uses their misery and defenselessness, and is still unpunished, these are called sins which cry to heaven. Finding no judge on earth, they cry to the all-knowing and righteous judge in heaven for vengeance, as the innocent blood of Abel, the sweat of the poor, and the tears of cheated widows wrung from them by usury. Sins of rashness, are those into which a person is hurled either by his temperament or through a sudden, unexpected, severe temptation. 
So Peter was suddenly hurled into his denial by the temptation of the fear of man and death. On the other hand, ruling sins are those in which the person lives and walks and which he is without a strong temptation willfully follows. Those are also called mortal sins. For who is thus governed by sin can have no faith, no spiritual life, nor stand in God's grace. He is not ruled by God's Spirit, and therefore is spiritually dead. Forgivable sins are those in which the person is not yet hardened so that he could not feel remorse over them. Repentance, a longing for grace or faith. On the other hand, the unforgivable sin is such a fearful hardening against all the impulses of the Spirit of God that the person despises, mocks, and reviles all grace, comfort, and forgiveness unto his end, and wants to know nothing of his Christ, his blood, and his reconciliation. In Scripture, this sin is also called the sin against the Holy Spirit, or the sin unto death, for which one dare not pray. Finally, Willful sins are those a person commits against better knowledge, despite all the decision and reprimands of his conscience. On the other hand, unwitting sins are such that a person commits without meaning to, yes, in which he often supposes that he does something God-pleasing. You see that there is a great wretched variety of sins of every shade, from the fleeting vain thought of our hearts to the stiff-necked hardening of a Pharaoh or a Judas. Every sin is and remains a revolt against God, the Father of light. No matter how small they may be, they can be forgiven only for the sake of Christ, the Son of God. Even the sins that we commit unwittingly, or even suppose that we are doing something good, yes, are doing God a service, are and remain sins. The Lord declares that in our reading for today. This is also the subject of today's consideration. John 15:26 through 16:4 Jesus says But when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away they will put you out of the synagogues Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So far our text. My friends, in this text, Christ foretells the disciples' fate when they will bear witness of him before the world. He says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Christ says that they would not only be excluded as heretics by those who would pretend to be the true church, but would also be cruelly persecuted even to death. Their persecutors would not be ashamed of their deed when they would banish the apostles. They would think that they were doing God a service particularly on the basis of this last declaration, let us consider the sinfulness of relying merely on good intentions. We will see that the greatest sins are committed with good intentions and that one's good intentions do not excuse or justify. 
We can accept the truth that when most commit their sins, they are motivated by good intentions. Good intentions are the fruitful mother of countless sins, the chief comfort with which most set their minds at rest in their sins, the excuse whereby they even refuse to repent. It is also the mightiest snare with which Satan traps souls, keeps them deceived, and draws them ever deeper into sin. What Christ, according to our text, predicted, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God was literally fulfilled only too soon. The Jews, especially who arrested the apostles, thought that they were committing no sin at all. They had the good intention of warring against the enemies of God, being zealous for the Father's law, and battling for the true church and only true divine worship. Luke expressly reports that Saul, who later became Paul, approved of Stephen's execution, Acts 8. Paul himself declares, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus Christ, Acts 26. He was, as he says elsewhere, a persecutor of the church of God only because he wanted to be zealous for God and his law. Speaking of the opposition of the Jews toward the gospel of grace in Christ, he says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Romans 10. Why did countless Christians become martyrs in those ten great persecutions during the first three centuries of the Christian era? Almost all fell as a sacrifice to the good intentions of the heathen. They thought that the Christians must be blotted out because they were enemies of the state and all humanity, enemies of the God, yes, since they had neither altar nor sacrifice, atheists. They were supposed to be the cause of all the natural calamities that were inflicted by their gods. Tertullian, the teacher of the church, writes that whenever devastating floods, continuous drought, earthquakes, famine, pestilence, and the like struck, heathen, with one voice cried, Throw the Christians to the lions. Is not all heathendom, with its terrible idolatry and unheard of abominations, built on nothing else than good intentions? With the good intention of serving the Most High, the heathen carry on the most frightful idolatry. They pray to the sun, moon, and stars. They venerate men, four-footed and creeping animals, birds, idols, and other lifeless objects. With good intentions, the heathen sacrifice human beings to their imagined gods, pour out the blood of their enemies on their altars, yes, even the blood of their own children. With good intentions, they observe the most disgraceful, unchaste, and heinous festivals, because they think that thus they serve their gods in an acceptable way. The Muslim cold-bloodedly dips his sword in the blood of Christians without his conscience becoming disturbed. He supposes that the more such enemies of God he kills, the higher his place in paradise will be. And how is it possible that the papacy, with all of its anti-Christian superstition, with its hierarchy and tyranny of souls, with its rejection of Christ and his only merit, with its idolatry, idolatrous veneration of the saints, with its cloisters and pilgrimages, with its forbidding the Bible, with its mutilation of the Lord's Supper, 
with its abomination of the mass, in short, with all its anti-Christian ingredients, could establish itself in the Christian church, keep itself alive, and spread. Malice and cunning are not enough to hold so many millions of souls captive and erect a structure that defies all time. The first root, and thereafter the mainstay of the papacy, were the good intentions with which most introduced the abuses. The opinion that they could make men obedient, pious, and save them only this way suppressed the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, set in its place the teachings of works righteousness. Finally, they even went so far as to silence with fire and sword those who witnessed against the abomination of the papacy. They were branded as heretics of the Church of Jesus Christ, and even now, the good intentions that thousands of the better informed in the papacy have are the main bulwark that hinders the final victory of the Reformation over the Antichrist. They suppose that if one would abolish this or that which one must reject, everything will collapse. They follow the principle that the end justifies the means. They think things must remain as they are and are blind to the fact that great numbers are drawn into eternal ruin. Moreover, if we look at the Protestant Church, it again is often the good intention that does immense harm. With enthusiastic sects, we see war against trust in the means of grace, the word of God, and the sacraments. They are led by the good intentions of thus promoting piety and holiness. With good intentions, they make a caricature of the whole Christian church through their enthusiastic follies. The world shrinks from the church as from the product of an overheated imagination. With good intentions, they battle against the pure doctrine, against the true church, against the faithful servants of God and sincere members and disciples of Christ. They imagine that they are warring against the enemies of true living piety and promoting the work of God. Even the universal wish to unite all churches without unity of doctrine, the tendency of paying very little or no attention to differences in doctrine, considering all false doctrine as something harmless as long as it not, does not appear directly opposed to the word of God. This tendency also has its source chiefly in the good intention of rising with united strength against the known enemies of the church, making more and more opportunities for the kingdom of God, and removing that which has hindered it from extending the borders of Christ's rule. All who will deny that many unbelievers, even with their warfare against God's word, against Christ and his gospel, even with their mocking and blaspheming of the most holy things, with their persecution of true Christians, also have the good intention of actually fighting for light and enlightenment, for truth and justice, for virtue and morality, in other words, for the well-being of mankind. Finally, the apostles themselves are good examples of the fact that even Christians are still deceived by their good intentions and often fall into the most dangerous ways. Christ had predicted his reconciling suffering. Peter spoke up with the good intention of talking Christ out of such a gloomy notion. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Thereupon the Lord angrily replied, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Matthew 16. We find in James and John, before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, an example of false religious zeal due to good intention. When the Samaritans had denied the Lord quarters, they cried, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Luke 9. Unquestionably, no sin is so great and terrible, no error so clear and ruinous, no enthusiasm so absurd and senseless, no worship, no church, no sect, no religion, no principle so false and wrong, but that it should not be united with and arise from the best of intentions of serving and pleasing God. However, do not good intentions excuse the erring and sinning? Yes, justify them? Not in the least. Permit me in the second place to add a bit about this. After Christ in our text predicted that men would excommunicate the disciples and cruelly persecute them, supposing that they were doing God a service, he adds, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Christ says for the comfort of the disciples that their persecutors would not be considered God's friends because of their good intentions. No, their intentions make it clear that they are still in their natural blindness, without knowledge of God and their salvation. They are still enemies of God. Yes, through their continued opposition to the enlightening power of the gospel, they have fallen into the judgment of an unconquerable delusion and obduracy. Far be it, therefore, that Christ should excuse or even justify those sins that were committed with good intentions. He calls it the revelation of a sinful condition, the poisonous discharge of a poisonous well, the fruits of the most fearful servitude of sin. True, with these words, Christ cannot mean to say that there is no difference between a sin committed with conscious malice or with good intentions. Christ, you know, expressly says to Pilate, Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin, John 19.11. And on the cross, Christ, in his petition for those who crucified him, mentioned their ignorance to the Heavenly Father with the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, Luke 23.34. Christ says of the city of Capernaum, where he had so often preached and done miracles in vain, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you, Matthew 11. And Paul says of himself, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, 1 Timothy 1, 13. Yet with these words, neither does Christ want to justify Pilate, his crucifiers, and the people of Sodom, nor does Paul want to justify himself. Christ means to say that those who did not know the Lord's will will suffer fewer stripes, but stripes nonetheless. And Paul says the ignorant, idolatrous heathen who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Romans 2.12 even among those who do evil with good intentions, there is nevertheless a great difference. 
in the first class belong those who have God's word but willfully resist the Holy Spirit. They remain in their blindness, yes, finally become so blinded that they deem the greatest crimes a service to God. This was the case with the Jews of whom Christ speaks in our text. Just before Christ had said, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. John fifteen twenty six through 27 When Christ says in the following verses, he says of the Jewish, Jewish persecutors of the apostles, And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. John 16, 3. He declares that their good intentions are the result of willfully resisting the Holy Spirit. The false church of the papacy also belongs to this class. Woe to her! With good intentions, she rejects God's word, substitutes the doctrines of men, persecutes the true church with excommunication, and, where she can, with fire and sword. Her good intentions will as little excuse her before as it did the Jews who rejected Christ. They will condemn her acts as willful blindness, enmity against God, Christ's word, and grace. Those who know nothing of God's word and consider the most terrible sins as virtues compose a second class. But they also are not excused. We dare not forget that even the most ignorant heathen and all unbelievers carry God's law in their conscience. They, writes Paul, are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Romans two fourteen and 15. But what do they do? They, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth that was still living in them from their birth, Romans 1.18. They go contrary to the voice of their conscience so long as they become so blind and dead that they consider the greatest abomination the most God-pleasing service. Woe, therefore, to all heathen and unbelievers! All their horrible sins, which were committed with good intentions, will damn them. They will have to confess that at first their conscience reprimanded them. Only repeated sinning against their conscience hurled them into their dreadful indifference and more than natural blindness. Finally, Christians who believe God's word and yet do wrong now and then out of good intentions compose the third class. They are also not excused. For why do they mistakenly do evil as though it were something good? because they do not let God's word guide them in all things. God, first of all, demands that everyone make only his word his rule and guide, departing from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. In the second place, God expressly warns against following one's heart or human commandments and opinions. The intention of man's heart, writes Moses, is evil from his youth, Genesis eight twenty one. Whoever trusts in his own mind, Solomon writes, is a fool, Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six. God warns through the prophet Malachi, so guard yourselves in your spirit, Malachi two fifteen. 
Christ says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 15, 9. Yes, when Saul had with good intentions offered a sacrifice, God said to him, To obey is better than to sacrifice. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. 1 Samuel 15. Not even Christians are excused if they do not serve God according to his word, but after their good intentions. Though they may show the greatest zeal, the deepest devotion in such self-elected service, and impose the heaviest burdens upon themselves, it is all in vain. They follow a seducing leader against whom God in his word warned them so often and so earnestly. My friends, let us not be more merciful than God himself. Though an unbeliever may suppose that with his sins he is serving God, in his word God has passed the sentence, He that believeth not shall be damned. Second, and above all, let us guard ourselves against following our hearts or the laws and opinions of men rather than God's word. It is God's word alone according to which we shall be judged. God's word must therefore be the only rule and guide of our faith and life, the only lamp for our feet and light for our path. Then we will not go astray, or, if out of weakness we should err, this light will always lead us back to the true way. May the humble prayer of that faithful lad Samuel be and remain in our hearts. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. 1 Samuel 3 verse 9. May God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, help us. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in, and we pray that God's Word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.